Hello and welcome to uh, the third episode of the Christian Realist podcast uh, for Holy Week 2020. So this uh, is for Tuesday, Tuesday of Holy Week. Today we're going to talk about this question that I put as the title of the podcast, Are the Stories in the Bible True? And you'll see as we go along, well, obviously this relates to Holy Week because there's stories about Holy Week, um, you know, that, that Holy Week is based on that we'll want to think about what it means, um, what those things mean. And so, so there's this question, are the stories in the Bible true? Well, this is the first, I guess, real controversy, controversy that we're getting into. And, um... I'm going to share my thoughts, and uh, as I do that, there may be some things that that may be unclear to you, or things that maybe are new to you. And if there's anything that you want to ask a question about, then please feel free to leave a comment and um, ask questions. If things don't make sense, or you're just not sure what I'm talking about, uh, because I do. Uh, I have a couple of degrees. So I have a bachelor's in theology, and I have a master's in divinity it's called and i've spent a lot of time learning about the bible and people's research about the bible and so uh, there's a lot of background that i have that other people don't and so i just want to you know put that out there if things are kind of unclear to you you know please go ahead and ask questions so as for the question of whether the stories in the bible are true the first thing that i want to say is that the authors of the bible we're actually not as concerned about this as we tend to be. Uh, now, this may sound strange, but the people who wrote the Bible, at least in some cases, they seem to be sort of playing fast and loose with the truth, so to speak, or with the facts. So, for example, when you look at the very first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, there are three different accounts of creation. Three different stories. They're not... Uh, they're not harmonized with each other at all. It's just three different stories that were gathered together and put into the same into the same book, and they don't exactly fit with each other necessarily. So, um, so whoever it was that put that together was not thinking that this all had to be some kind of divine revelation that said in detail exactly what had happened factually. They had a very different intention in mind. Similarly, in in the Old Testament. There are two different versions of the Ten Commandments. Two different versions. They're different commandments. It's not the same. So you know the familiar list of the Ten Commandments, and then there's a totally different list of Ten Commandments uh, that's found, I think, in Leviticus, if I remember correctly. And it really, uh, it's, it's significantly different. You can go and look it up if you haven't heard of this. But again, the people who put these together, who assembled the Bible, they knew that this was the case, that there were different stories that were not really reconcilable, um, but that wasn't what they had in mind when they put these things together, was that it was, they weren't thinking this is history, they were just uh, history, you know, strictly in the most accurate sense that we think of it. Um, they were putting this together as a spiritual exercise. Uh, similarly, just in the New Testament, there's also uh, evidence that the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, were not composed with an eye toward historical accuracy so much as this uh, in spiritual intention. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, it's frequently very unclear 
where the quotations from Jesus end and where the commentary or the interpretation of Jesus begins. And in the Gospel of Matthew, another thing that also is very obvious is that Matthew repeats a couple of stories that are in the Gospel of Mark, and he changes them so that instead of there being only one witness to a miracle of Jesus, there become two witnesses. So like instead of there being one demoniac who had the demons removed, then there's two demoniacs. And instead of there being uh, one blind man, then there's two blind men. So clearly it was not their purpose to try to uh, convey exactly the details of what happened factually and historically. What was recorded were what we would think of as more like folk tales, things that are more like, uh, you know, like symbolic stories uh, to a point. Now they did, of course, um, have some historical basis. At least we assume that most or all of the stuff in the Old Testament has some kind of historical background. Um, I mean, maybe not the stuff, all the stuff in Genesis, but certainly things that come later. Uh, and obviously, in the New Testament, the stuff about Jesus, we assume that that is largely based on things that actually happened. But we really have no way of knowing how much of that is uh, interpretation, how much of that is people sort of telling the story in a way that was meant to communicate something, that was meant to communicate wisdom, that was meant to communicate a spiritual truth, and not so much uh, just the, the facts. Now, there are ways, of course, to explain away the inconsistencies in Scripture, if you're really dedicated to the idea that everything in the Bible is factually accurate. But why would you do that? <laughs> because the Bible itself never claims to be factually accurate. It doesn't say that. This idea that the Bible is inerrant is not found in the Bible. And Jesus never said it either. There was never even uh, an ecumenical council of the church to establish that idea. So this was something that people came to believe at some point in history, but the basis for it is it's pretty vague, it's pretty philosophical, and in some ways it's a social, it's a social thing. You know, it happened for cultural reasons. So what I think is that if you are coming to the Bible on your terms, or maybe on the terms of the tradition in which you were raised, then you will perhaps judge it according to whether you think that it's factually accurate, and you'll say, well, it's not true, because there are things that are inconsistent. Or maybe you'll say, oh, well, it is true, because you've convinced yourself that it's inerrant, uh, one or the other. But when you take the Bible on its own terms, the way that it presents itself, then there's no, there's no question, it's just true. It is true, because what it presents are these stories that are so full of wisdom, these stories that are full of, of life, that are full of just, you know, the love of God, that communicate to us something that is absolutely essential for our lives. And uh, I want to just share with you a little bit from the Gospel of John today. So first I want to share with you this verse at the very end of the Gospel of John, 
where it talks about Jesus and the beloved disciple. And it just says in verse 24 of uh, John 21, the last chapter, this, the, the beloved disciple, it says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, for us, because of our culture, we might at first think, oh, well, they're saying because he was an eyewitness, then he knows what actually happened. He knows the facts. He's gotten the facts straight. But I don't think that's really what it's getting at at all. I think that what it's getting at is that they know that Jesus was who he said he was, and that's what's presented in this text, because they know the disciple whom Jesus loved. They know who he was and how he was transformed by Jesus' love, how his life was changed. They saw it shining in the light of his face, you know. They saw it in the the heart of caring that he had for the community. So they, they knew that this stuff was true because they had seen it in the beloved disciple who was not just beloved of Jesus, but beloved of the community that grew up around him as well. Anyway, that's what I hear in that passage. And to me, that is what it means for the Bible to be a sacred text. What makes it a sacred experience for me is that in reading this book, I am connected to Jesus, connected to Moses, connected to people whose stories were so incredible, so revelatory that they were told and retold. So I'm connected to these people and to those who wrote the stories down, the people who preserved the writings, who copied them carefully and read them over and over, the people who translated these words. We are all part of this this web of relationships. We're tied together with this thread of God's love, which has transformed each of us, which has affected each of us, and that's been passed on from one person to another in this way. So... To me, that's what it means for the Bible to be true, for the Bible to be inspired, and for it to be a sacred text. All right, so short message today, and I'm just going to read to you a prayer of Jesus. This is also from the Gospel of John, and this is from chapter 17, which is part of these many things that Jesus says to this the uh, says to the disciples just before he is betrayed and executed and in this chapter he gives this beautiful prayer that speaks to what i've just been talking about so i'm going to go ahead and read just verses 1 through 10 and 20 through 23 When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. And now we're going to sing How Firm a Foundation. We'll we'll sing uh, all of the verses, actually. So if you know it, then sing along. Right, now let's just take a moment for prayer.
And uh, since we forgot to take our deep breaths earlier, we'll take a couple deep breaths now. Dear God, I thank you for the gift of the scriptures that you have provided for us. I thank you so much for all those whose lives were given in devotion to you in order to gain the wisdom that has been passed down to us. And thank you to so many who have preserved these sacred texts who have translated them, who have brought them to us, the people who have taught these things to us, who have demonstrated your love so that we too could know Jesus, so that we too could know who you are, O oh God. We thank you and we pray that we also will be a light that shines in the darkness, that we each will be people who reveal your love, your grace, to those who are in need of seeing that light, of recognizing your truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, thank you, and I will uh, see you. Well, I guess I won't see you, but, you know, whatever. Tomorrow! All right. God bless.